the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us on The Dan Proft Show again. Appreciate you tuning in. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow or at Dan Proft. And uh, we begin on this installment with uh, more on uh, the selection of Kamala Harris. Uh, yesterday, the uh, homecoming king and queen of Antifa U presented themselves for public viewing in Delaware. Uh, President Trump was on with uh, Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business this morning uh, to um, opine on uh, Kamala Harris a bit more. Well, she's radical left. Now she tries to pretend she's not, but she's the most liberal person in the U.S. Senate, acknowledged to be. Uh, she's done things that are terrible in terms of the police, in terms of the Second Amendment, in terms of everything else. And she uh, is a big taxer, as Joe is a big taxer. They want to tax $4 trillion. It's going to be the biggest tax increase in history by far. Yeah, and uh, you know, to uh, President Trump's point, it, it is sort of remarkable Kamala Harris, Reparation H, has a more left voting, voting record than Bolshevik Bernie according to one assessment of the competing voting records. And it speaks to this, I think, perhaps more accurate indictment of Kamala that the president launched with when her announcement was first made that she's a phony. There is no position she will not take. There is nothing she will not say and say and say and say in pursuit of political power. It's a very much an ends justify the means philosophy. And so what does that say about the Democrat Socialist Party? If it's true that Kamala Harris is uh, ciphered in the same way Joe Biden is, it, interestingly, is as beholden to the Marxist, uh, uh, the Marxist in charge of the party as is Biden. The criticism coming in before the vice presidential election was made was that Joe Biden We'll just do whatever the socialist Spice Girls and the Marxists that run the party want done. Right. You couldn't sell Bernie Sanders through the front door. So you sell Bernie Sanders policies through the back door with Biden and Kamala. But the fact that it's the same policies just packaged differently. The fact that Kamala, who couldn't explain Medicare for all, which is why she was all over the place on as a presidential candidate, who is, you know, tries to middle on so many of these issues like defunding police that we uh, played you the clip of yes, uh, yesterday when she was on The View with Meghan McCain. And she sort of we need to reimagine not def she wouldn't say defund. It's reimagined, but it's going in the same direction. 
the fact that that's where she is tells you everything you need to know about the party writ large. That is where the bulk of the party is. I know there are those longtime Dem stalwarts who still want to believe there are remnants of John F. Kennedy in the Democrat Party. Hell, John F. Kennedy, remnants of even Michael Dukakis in the party. And they're not. I mean, they're remnants, perhaps, but in terms of the idea that, no, the majority is really moderate and you've got, you know, some vocal over amplified elements of this uh, cultural and economic Marxist class in the party. No, no, uh-uh. it is Marxism, identitarian style. It is where all of the energy is. It is where the Democrat Party, Democrat Socialist Party is. And Kamala Harris, the phony, the cipher, her voting record to the left of the Bolshevik, the out and proud Bolshevik tells you that about the party, tells you what I'm saying is true. And so let's just walk down memory lane for a second to highlight the positions that Kamala took during her primary candidacy is uh, inauthentically so, but uh, perhaps, but nonetheless, she took them. So she has to own them. And now she's going to probably try to, couch them or walk away from them altogether. Um, this, for example, Kamala on on ice. Do you agree with uh, those who would abolish ice? A lot of the signs at the rally you just held were people standing there saying abolish ice. Yeah. Is that a position that you agree with? Listen, I think there's no question that we've got to critically re-examine ICE and its role and the way that it is being administered and the work it is doing. And we need to probably think about starting from scratch. Think about starting from scratch. That's a soft-pedaled way of saying, yes, abolish ICE. Sure, I know. That's where the party is. The same thing she did on defund police a couple of years. Well, a couple of years. Uh, uh, that was last year. This is this year. Same thing she did on police now in The View, played yesterday. Uh, Kamala Harris on banning fracking. You know, the... Uh, the, the, the natural gas revolution that was responsible for 70 percent of the new jobs created under the Obama administration, even while they were opposed to it rhetorically. Will you commit to implementing a federal ban on fracking your first day in office, adding the United States to the list of countries who have banned this devastating practice? There's no question I'm in favor of banning fracking. So, yeah. And, and- Hooray. And there's no question I'm opposed to the energy revolution that was responsible for the growth during the Obama years, anemic as it was. Uh-huh. On, um, uh, down to the minutiae, right? The positions you have to take. There's no ability to, to repurpose the question to say, you know, something like a plastic straw ban is interesting uh, we can talk about it in the larger context of what is per, per sensible environmental policy. But she's she's in the business of checking boxes, telling people what they want to hear, trying to, in the most sort of obsequious way, just do I got your vote? Now, can I move on to say the next thing? And plastic straws are a big thing right now. Yeah. Do you ban plastic straws? I think we should. Yes. Yeah, I sure, don't think we should be using plastic straws anymore. No, of course. Joe Biden doesn't either. Big issues. I ask again, there anything she won't say and say and say and say, regardless of how silly 
how tone-deaf the questions are in the context of all of the challenges America faces, even before the COVID outbreak, even before the urban unrest, before George Floyd's killing. Kamala during the primary again, being asked about regulating America's consumption of red meat. Remember, this is a big issue. <laughs> this is an issue that was being asked about in debates. Um, certain countries have changed their dietary guidelines uh, to reduce the consumption of red meat uh, in light of the impact of, of the climate change. Yeah. Uh, if elected, uh, are you, will you be supporting uh, change uh, in dietary guidelines? And then how will you plan on implementing the changes so that people effectively change their diets? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, and thank you, Carol, for your work and the question. Um, there is, I, I think of the, the point that you're raising in, the, in, in a broader context, which is that as a nation, we actually have to have a real priority at the highest level of government highest around level of government. what we eat and priority. in terms of healthy eating, because we have a problem in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about all that we are now the subject of this conversation. We can talk about um, the amount of sugar in everything. We can, talk, we can talk about soda. We can go on and on. Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, but I'll also say this. We and she just prattles on for another minute. So the answer is yes to what regulate having at the highest levels of government, the regulation of your red meat intake, one butt steak per month under Kamala Harris. She's Michelle Obama's school lunch program on steroids. And those will be regulated, too. Every issue requires a solution in quotation marks from the highest levels of government, including things like red meat intake. How silly do some of these questions and answers seem now in terms of the challenges that face American families? And remember the positions that she has taken and that she had to try to walk back from to try to spin out of by just continuing to talk and talk and talk in that lawyerly way where you use as many words as possible to convey zero meaning. She was clear on this one until she wasn't. You support uh, the Medicare for All bill, I think, initially co-sponsored by Senator Bernie Sanders. You're also a co-sponsor on on it. I believe it will totally eliminate private insurance. Um, So for people out there who like their insurance, they don't get to keep it. Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kamala Harris, uh, phony is the right label on her. Uh, But but I, I just go back just to restate. If she's a phony... And the positions she has taken are the positions a phony would take to curry favor, to ascend in the party. What does it say about the whole Democrat Socialist Party in 2020 America? This is Dan Proff. Show.com. Welcome back to the program, and we go from uh, holding uh, Kamala Harris to account for the position she's taken, the rhetoric she's used, to uh, doing the same on the Republican side of the aisle. And um, not me doing it, uh, but my colleague, 
who I'm always honored to call a colleague, Hugh Hewitt, doing it in his uh, interview yesterday with uh, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. And uh, I've uh, never been more so honored to, to uh, call Hugh Hewitt a colleague than after this effort to hold Republicans in the Senate, in the majority, committee chairman, to account for their inability to get accountability for the principles of agencies that were involved in Spygate. And that was the focus of the discussion that Hewitt had with Senator Johnson. And to Hewitt's credit, he was not interested in tolerating procedural excuses for substantive failures. And he shouldn't have been. We shouldn't be three years in. I think uh, it's clear from what Hugh was communicating that he gets this. You don't get to run on slaying the D.C. Leviathan, as so many of these politicians do, and then get excused because, quote, the bureaucracy wouldn't let me, unquote. They wouldn't let wouldn't let me drain the swamp, wouldn't let me slay Leviathan. It just doesn't wash. And so Hugh started out by suggesting what uh, Senator Johnson doesn't appreciate. Are you aware that in the eyes of someone like me, a center right, you're failing? Do you understand that the committee and Senator Graham's committee on this issue are failing the American people? We don't have the answers. I I share your frustration, which is why I subpoenaed Director Ray. Okay, yes, I I understand time is running out, but, but Hugh, when you have, first of all, you have a criminal investigation, so we don't get documents. Then you have a special counsel, and you don't get documents. Then you have an impeachment, and then you have covid it, it has definitely slowed us down in terms of our ability to get information. Then why, why do you go home on the weekend? Why is the Senate in session three days a week? If you're being slowed down, why the hell don't you stay there and demand documents seven days out of a week, 24 hours a day? Why no, don't you? Are, we have failed. I'm, whether I'm in D.C. or not, I'm working on this almost nonstop. Okay, so is my staff. I don't, okay. I don't need to be in D.C. here. But uh, well, we, again, okay. if, if I'm not in my studio, I ain't working. Well, hey, here's the thing. It's not so much whether wherever Ron Johnson is physically present, it's what you're effectively accomplishing. And uh, if you're telling me that uh, Christopher Ray won't turn over documents that the, the he and the FBI are compelled to turn over to Senate oversight, then why haven't you publicly called for Christopher Ray's resignation? Why haven't you gone to the president of the United States and said, you need to relieve Christopher Ray of his post because he is non-compliant. He is not aiding our oversight responsibilities. He is, in fact, uh, arguably, I mean, according to Senator Johnson, not getting the documents he wants, subpoenaing Christopher Ray to talk about the documents he's not getting. Then he is obstructing Senate, the Senate from uh, conducting its oversight responsibilities. So where is the profile being raised on this problem that Ron Johnson has had? Hewitt was not interested in hearing about documents you're not getting. You can still subpoena Comey. You can still subpoena Brennan. You can still subpoena Strzok. You can ask questions, even without documents. I will give Johnson this. Yes, if there is documents you think, if there are documents you think will aid in the cross-examination of a witness, then of course you want to get those documents. Any evidence that would aid in a more effective cross-examination should be obtained, but readily. You cannot forever throw your hands up and say, I can't get the evidence that I know exists um, and do nothing in furtherance of uh, of a reckoning for those people who are obstructing your ability to get that evidence. You know, I mean, Johnson just can't have it every which way. And that was the frustration that Hewitt was having with some of his answers to these questions. Uh, Hewitt also wanted, uh, you know, called him out for 
you know, Republicans, why don't you know on those subpoenas for some of these principles? Why haven't uh, has the Senate, uh, your committee, not pursued those subpoenas? And Johnson suggested, well, some of the Republican members of the Senate, uh, his, his, his Homeland Security Committee, are a bit recalcitrant, and he would want them to call out names. And I know Johnson's not going to call out names on that sh- on on any show. He's not going to be pushed into doing something he wasn't intending to do and announce it on a radio program before he talks to his colleagues about it, just in the in, in furtherance of the working relationship. OK, fine. But Hewitt's not wrong to suggest, which is really what the point of the suggestion was. You need to be a lot more aggressive. And if there are Republican senators who are running interference on the accountability that the American people demand f- uh, from Agencies whose principles were involved in a coup against the president of the United States, for goodness sakes, then you need to be that aggressive, Ron Johnson. The excuse making time is over, regardless of what we get from Durham. And hopefully by the end of the month, you know, the end of the summer is the end of this month. That's what Barr intimated would be about the timeline for Durham to complete his investigation and make uh, recommendations on prosecutions. Well, that looks to be where this is going to go someplace or it's going to continue to go nowhere because it was going nowhere with Johnson and it's been going nowhere with Graham on judiciary either. I'm shaking my head. I don't think, Senator, you understand the depth to which people like me, the center right of the party, are absolutely disappointed in our senators. Absolutely disappointed. They play hardball in the House. You guys play softball underhand in the Senate and... We are going to lose this election if we lose it in the Senate, if we lose the Senate, because you and Lindsey let them do this. You let them slow walk you into a corner. I, 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 I don't know how to respond to that, Hugh. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing everything I, I can in terms of... Well, you ought to kick ass forward. on your committee I'm, I'm, I'm staff I'm and fire people. Trying to destroy me. I'm pushing forward. Uh, I'm, I'm just sorry you feel this way. I'm, well, I'm doing everything I, I believe I possibly can in this thing. Go, you know what? You want a suggestion? Go into your next committee hearing and ask for the authority to subpoena Jim Comey and hold a vote in public and let's see who says no. Because that will tell me a lot about the senators on your committee. Will you commit to doing that? Not on a radio show, Hugh. Sorry. What's wrong with a radio show? I had the president on yesterday. And, again, there. You are, what can I say, Hugh? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm doing Maybe I'm sorry to the American people. Maybe I'm sorry. Have you read my the 11 page open letter I just published on Monday? No, you and don't. Don't you get it? Goals. You don't get it. We don't care about that. I want to know when Comey's going to be in front of your committee. And now it sounds like well, never. I, I know you're hung up on Comey's testimony. There's all kinds of different aspects to this thing as well. So, Senator Ron Johnson, come uh, back yes, when you've yes, got yes. something for me. Oof. Uh, Again, I appreciate Hewitt's frustration. I think there's a whole lot of Americans who feel the same. And by the way, it's not just about Comey or Brennan or Strzok. It includes them. Uh, That was an example of the problem. Maria Bartiromo sat down with Stephen Schrage, who first connected Carter Page with FBI informant Stefan Halper back in 2016 and Strage said the real smoking gun is figuring out why Stefan Halper and Christopher Steele are being protected. He told Bartiroma, the key part, and I think the real smoking gun in all of this, all these tentacles lead back to this small group, including Stefan Halper at the center of Spygate, Christopher Steele at the center of Russiagate, Stefan Halper's FBI handler. Why haven't they been subpoenaed? None of the Senate has subpoenaed these or called these people to talk in four years. I think that's the real smoking gun, said Strage. 
I don't want to get Hugh even more frustrated than he already is, but I'm just adding more material for his uh, push on Johnson, and I hope he gets a shot at Lindsey Graham, too, because he's absolutely right in what he's expressing about the failure of Senate Republicans. This is Dan Proctor. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Alan Blinder is a... uh Econ professor at Princeton. He uh, writes about uh, COVID-19 and its prevention, stopping the spread, if you will, from an economic perspective. Not a particularly uh, compelling one, in my view, but nonetheless. Face masks. First, they cost money. They're uncomfortable, make you look a bit odd. Individuals who make decisions in their own best interest will balance these costs against the benefits of reducing their susceptibility to the virus, which scientists tell us is small. Based on this personal cost-benefit analysis, each individual will decide whether or not to wear a mask. But wait, what about neighbors, coworkers, and passers-by? He's making the externalities argument for those who have passed an Econ 101 course. Since wearing a mask benefits uh, other people much more than ourselves, the beneficial externality for mask wearing is huge. Uh, More or less the same can be said of social distancing. The standard remedy for an externality is a tax or a subsidy, but this is impractical for masking or distancing. The best compromise may be an enforced mandate that people wear masks and practice social distancing in public. Enforcement would be difficult, but it's effective in some states and many European countries. Yeah, Alan, it's also not enforced at all in other European countries, but okay. Here, however, we hear thunder on the right, even from some Republican governors, that requiring either masking or distancing infringes on individual liberty. Well, sure, so do red lights and speed limits, which, like masks, save lives. It's no exaggeration. The anti-maskers are killing people. And those focused on placebo effects, like cloth coverings on your face so that you can signal or so that people can feel like they're doing the right thing, doing something important. I would argue is uh, dumbing down the discussion to the point of killing people. But that's me. And uh, this uh, hysteria and hyper focus on masks to me seems so wildly beside the point. I mean, I'm old enough to remember two weeks to stop the spread. That was all the way back. That was a simpler time back in uh, March of 2020. I remember when we had uh, a little bit less willingness to indulge the combination of ignorance and moralizing. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Gary Slutkin again. He's a physician and epidemiologist who has led efforts to combat epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, and AIDS. He's a former director of intervention at the WHO, currently tracking and advising governments on COVID-19. He's also the founder of the nonprofit Cure Violence. Dr. Slutkin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I appreciate being with you. Before we uh, get to masks and some of these other matters, Kamala Harris said yesterday, um, that uh, Ebola was a was a pandemic. Was it was Ebola a pandemic? Is that a proper uh, it, does that fit in the, the definition of that word Ebola? Yeah, the definition is a little peculiar in terms of how it's used, but it had the potential to go everywhere if it wasn't contained. And it did come here in a small way here, meaning North America. And it is actually more deadly than even this one. 
well, wildly um, more than deadly. COVID-19, but, but a lot less contagious. Yes, that, that seems to matter. Transmissibility seems to be a big issue. And, of course, uh, Ebola was transmitted by contact, uh, not by droplets, right? right? Yeah. Droplet two if someone was coughing and very, very, very thick, but right. not by someone walking down the street who looks fine and healthy. They weren't transmitting, whereas here it's an entirely different story. So uh, let's let's talk about that a bit. So with respect to mandates like mask wearing, to have them or not have them, I, all, the discussion seems to be really almost singularly in the direction of the mask mandate and having them. But, you know, it turns out and, and then they're complaining like Professor Blinder or Princeton complaining about people who make individual decisions that run contrary to the decision that he would make. What about uh, making a decision about the degree? I mean, if uh, mask wearing is a mandate, maybe we should have as a national policy, the policy Wisconsin state government, where you have to wear masks on Zoom calls with your colleagues from home, even if you're by yourself. Why don't we make that the mandate? I mean, that's mask wearing. Uh, Who's to say that that's not more effective? If if a mask in closed spaces inside is good, why not a mask outside? Why not a mask on a Zoom call when you're having a call with colleagues? Uh, Why not a face shield? Tony Fauci has now floated a face shield. Why not earplugs? You know, it's just for it's just for a short period of time. I protect you just for a short period of time. It's just out of an abundance of caution. It's just to be safe. It's just to save lives. I think you know the answer to your own question. I mean, the virus is transmitted in the air and masks will block it from one person's mouth to another. And it really is an extremely important thing for yourself and for the person who's talking to you or who's near you. And there's been a lot, as we've talked about on your show before, which I'm happy to, to discuss, it really has a major effect in terms of preventing transmission, if we could get mask wearing up to 60, 70% or more, we'd see the transmission rates go down and down and down and down and down. Uh, Let's hold it right there. And when we come back, uh, more discussion on uh, the argument for mandatory masking. Uh, We'll be right back with Dr. Gary Slutkin. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show we're back with former director of intervention for the world health organization dr gary slutkin and before the break you were making the case for mask wearing and advocated uh, for more compliance with mask mandates But uh, cases are surging in Hawaii at present, Hawaii, which is an island, Hawaii, which has the strictest mask mandate in the country. So explain that. Well, they're surging from very, very, very low levels. Oh, that matters. Oh, the context matters. So the context matters in in central and southern Illinois, too, where we have one third of our counties that have zero covid deaths. And so you see a little bit of a spike off of a small base and and people over extrapolate from it, just as we had earlier this week with the AP talking about nine of the 10 hotspots in the country are in Florida and Texas. And you were talking about counties with like 70,000 people that had a very small caseload and it ticked up a little bit, for example, number one in the country because 
there was an outbreak in their local prison. It, the, the, the reporting on this and, frankly, the repeating of it from so many public health professionals, not you, but I'm saying some public health professionals, is so disingenuous, it's so misleading that, that your, the profession as a whole is losing legitimacy. And this is where you get people, even reasonable people like me, telling you know, people that say you should do this and you should do that. I'm, I'm, you know, where you get sort of tired of listening to people who can are consistently wrong and consistently misleading tell you how you should live your life. All right. So here we are. And you have um, a radio show and you're an educator. And you have an audience that wants to know what they should do and also how to talk to their policymakers in a reasonable way. So these are the things that we really need to be clear on. These masks work. And people who are not wearing these masks are really doing a disservice to themselves and to the community. When I see three people walking down the street and two are wearing a mask, I don't know how they could be walking with that third person. Okay, one. Two, the policymakers, where the, the bars and indoor restaurants have no place in the lethal respiratory pathogenic um, pandemic of this magnitude the worst in 100 years now you're right it's worse in some places than others but in a lot of places look at your normal your local data if your percent positivity rate is five percent is five percent or higher or if it's increasing and you've got bars and restaurants open i don't know why so this this distancing works the masks work closing these places indoors works. So so you, you advise uh, governments on this topic. So is your advice that we should be in, in full lockdown, including with respect to schools, including with respect to airlines, just out of an abundance of caution? Uh, what I've been saying to mayors is get your numbers and rates down as far as you can. Do not be satisfied with the so-called bending the curve. Get it all the way down where your percent positive rate is less than five and that your number of cases per week is less than 50 per hundred thousand. And how, how do they do that? Because that's what they would ask us. How should I do that, doctor? The main things are is get your bars closed, get your indoor restaurants, sorry, closed for now, you know, unless your rates are really down there, and promote and uh, encourage, and if you have to enforce, I don't like it, really get this mask wearing up mm-hmm. you don't have to totally lock down get it and then show that show that your percent is going down and the number of new cases is going down show it and when you get it to a certain level your all this contact tracing and case finding is going to be able to hold it down so what, why should other inside spaces not be also closed? Why should retail outlets, not also retail businesses and other businesses also not be closed like restaurants? Well, I think what the, the primary difference is the crowding and the staying in one place for a long time. And then it gets loud. And, you know, the, the, there's a relationship between loudness and droplet and airborne spread. So it's this hanging around for five hours, two hours, three hours, talking really close to each other, talking over the loudness, you know, with all that stuff. It's just much more intense. And I that, myself am not going into indoor stores. And and so school Okay, you're not going you're not going to indoor stores. Okay. And so schools then too, there should be no in person instruction in schools either. Well, I can't say no. 
some places may be able to do it right. But my worries is not just is 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 really not the kids. There's been 90 deaths from kids, and there are outbreaks in schools. Everybody say, okay, the kids aren't getting it so much, but the parents and the staff and the grandparents and you know babies are getting this, and so our babies at home when the kid comes home as well. So you know, I think that it's it's wiser in places where the rates are high to not be doing the schools now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. check back in three months. Check back in three months. You know, it's like, take me to another planet for three months. Get your act together. And then I'll see if my kids are, are and I am going to be safe with what you've got. Well, right what? now, your city does not have it together. Yeah, well, in so many ways. Uh, when, uh, when uh, w- one more one more question on the mask. So, uh, I, I mean, cloth masks, cloth masks that aren't uh, disinfected, you know, the surgical masks, the same thing as N95 masks, for example. And if, if not, if one is safer than the other and when properly fitted, shouldn't there be a specific mandate for specific masks that be worn rather than just, a, you know, a face covering that is uh, not effective at uh, uh, in any way? And certainly they there's a lot of studies that suggest this, oh, by the way, that it's not effective in prevention of transmission. Yeah, you're you're right. But these the surgical and medical masks and the um, the two or three layers of a tight weave cotton are are all very very good. They get you up to you know this seventy percent range. But that's really for the droplets. That's for the droplets because the the airborne stuff can get in the sides, and that's why you need to have the other people um, getting a mask and staying away from people who don't have a mask. Okay. They're really doing the service. He but is, these, these uh, two or three layers, white wool, clock, uh, cotton, you can't see through them. That's very good stuff. He is Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, AIDS, former director of intervention at the World Health Organization, and currently tracking and advising governments on COVID-19, as I mentioned. Dr. Slutkin, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Welcome back to the show, and I didn't want the hour to uh, go by without uh, at least some discussion of law and order. Remarkable letter, remarkable in the sense that there just hasn't been enough outrage expressed, enough commentary, enough examples of people in the business community stepping up and calling their elected officials, calling the elected officials to account for the lawlessness, particularly in cities that have long been governed by big government Democrats and Marxist ideologues like Chicago. Well, this from Stephen Levy, who is the president of a big property management concern called Sudler. He writes to uh, Mayor Lightfoot after the pillaging of Chicago a few days ago. I'm writing to you today not only as a concerned resident, but also as a leader of a Chicago-based property management company that serves over 100 local condo associations, over 22,000 homeowners, and approximately 38,000 residents. 
Much like you, one of my many primary duties is to ensure the well-being of the residents I represent. The homeowners we represent do not feel safe. It's, but it's not just the homeowners who don't feel safe in the city, he continues. I rely on a superb team of property supervisors and managers, as well as unionized door or janitorial and valet staff, and their abilities to do their jobs have been impeded by recent events. Staff have fearfully traveled through downtown in the middle of looting sprees just to report to their shifts on time. They've dragged dumpsters in front of doorways as additional blockades, rehearsed and implemented lockdown procedures called 911 on repeat and for some have faced to have been face to face with criminals threatening violence. This is not a way to live, not a way to work. And this is not the Chicago I know. And so I'm writing you on behalf of tens of thousands to demand a change without an immediate change. I'm concerned that homeowners will flee. Properties will stand vacant. Businesses will fail. And the Chicago we both know will be a shell of what it once was and what it could be. You know, there was a different time in Chicago. This just was recalling this, not that I'm advocating this, but just what's happened in 50 years. 1968, after the King assassination and the rioting ensued, this was Mayor Richard J. Daley issuing his orders. I said to him very emphatically and very definitely that an order be issued immediately under his signature to shoot to kill any arsonist or anyone with a Molotov cocktail in their hand in Chicago to fire a building because they're potential murderers and to issue a police order to shoot, to maim, or cripple anyone looting any stores in our city. And above all, the crime of arson. Uh, shoot to kill arsonists, shoot to maim or cripple looters. There is a lot of space between uh, Richard J. Daly's view on public safety and approach to affecting it and uh, the Lori Lightfoot, Kim Fox, uh, Bill de Blasio, Ted Wheeler, Jenny Durkin, uh, Jacob Frey, Fry, whatever his name is in Minneapolis. There's a lot of space between the shoot to kill arsonists and shoot to maim looters and the non-prosecution appeasement approach that just generates more thuggery of these big city mayors who I just named, to name but a few. A lot of common sense space between those to make sure that people are uh, afforded the safety they pay for and should expect in big city America. This is Dan Price. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. So uh, the uh, introduction of uh, the D.C. Press Corps' new favorite couple, Biden and Harris, yesterday in Delaware, Harris, uh, this was her first turn at uh, prosecuting the case against Trump on behalf of somebody other than herself when she was a presidential candidate, on uh, behalf of both uh, she and Joe Biden. And, of course, uh, starting with the pandemic, that uh, this has been uh, mishandled by President Trump. It's cost many more jobs and many more lives than it otherwise had to. America is crying out for leadership. Yet we have a president who cares more about himself than the people who elected him. A president who is making every challenge we face 
even more difficult to solve. It didn't have to be this way. Six years ago, in fact, we had a different health crisis. It was called Ebola, and we all remember that pandemic. But you know what happened then? Barack Obama and Joe Biden did their job. I remember Joe Biden stood on the eastern seaboard and said, Ebola, you shall not pass. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by PowerlineBlog.com's John Hinderaker. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So what is your assessment of uh, Kamala Harris as a asset to uh, Joe Biden's presidential aspirations? I'm kind of an outlier here. I sort of like Kamala Harris. You really are an outlier. Yes. (laughs) The reason is her insincerity is so obvious. <laughs> if you, I mean, someone like Elizabeth Warren, for example, actually believes the nonsense that mm. she says, the whole far left program. Now, she's rich, so she doesn't want to take it that far. But Kamala Harris, I don't think she believes in anything except the ambition of Kamala Harris. And the fact that it is so transparent makes her, in my eyes, uh, almost likable. And wouldn't it be interesting if it turns out that Kamala Harris is the gaffe machine on that ticket? Because she really struggled in the presidential primary to figure out exactly what her positions were going to be on things like eliminating private health insurance and banning fracking and reducing the amount of red meat Americans are allowed to eat and so forth. Well, that's right. I mean, it became kind of a joke. If a reporter asked her a question and the answer didn't go over well, she would just give the opposite answer the next day. Our uh, mutual friend, uh, Victor Davis Hanson, said to me yesterday, the ticket on the ticket there, you've got Joe Biden, who doesn't know where he is, and Kamala Harris, who doesn't know who she is. Uh, I think that's a pretty good summation. I think it sums it up very well. But, you know, people don't vote for vice presidents. Now, this year, of course, is very strange. There was some poll data the other day that found that 59%, I think was the number of respondents, thought it was likely that if he won, Joe Biden couldn't serve for four years. So maybe that will have people uh, scrutinizing the VP candidates more closely. How concerned are you that uh, Trump gets tagged with this line of attack that they launched yesterday, the idea that to look at uh, all of this destruction from Trump, you think that uh, the administration has done an effective job at sort of either separating uh, them from the culpability of what the pandemic has inflicted or making it that, hey, look, this is, uh, you know, everybody, nobody could have done anything to prevent uh, the deaths or to prevent the job loss, maybe to a certain extent. But ultimately, this is beyond the control of mere mortals. Well, I think most people understand that. But the reality is that we view our president in considerable part as a good luck charm. You know, the Democrats are assuming that, you know, if if things are going great, the president gets reelected. If times are seen as being bad or, or troubled, you know, that's bad for an incumbent president, regardless of whether it's his fault. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think before COVID came along, in my view, Trump had about a 99% chance of winning the election. Now I think it's, it's dropped considerably simply because he doesn't have you know, the same record of peace and prosperity to point to that he had in, in January. Now, that said, I think the idea that the epidemic is somehow his fault is, is ridiculous, and I think most voters get that. You mentioned a peace and prosperity. Um, we don't have the prosperity back yet, or perhaps uh, outside of the stock market. But with respect to peace, it seems like uh, whatever advantage they gain politically, the Democrats from the pandemic, They have frittered away because of their unwillingness to stand for the rule of law in major cities in America. And I wonder if you think ultimately, look, if you have more nights in the coming 90 days like we've seen in big cities around the country, most recently in Chicago this week, 
it seems to me that that could be preeminent on the minds of voters in terms of informing their vote, even if you don't live in one of those big cities, because there's a lot of those suburban swing voters that may not live in the city, but they live in a metropolitan region that counts on the city. Well, you know, I, I live in Minnesota, and we're seeing that in spades. We had the rioting in Minneapolis and, to a lesser extent, in St. Paul. But the people who are frightened by it include suburbanites and especially suburban women, you know, a demographic that has drifted away from the GOP in recent years. But when they see the video of, of the kind of rioting, arson, the kind of looting that, that, that you had on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, I mean, it's shocking. I, I think it will turn off a lot of voters. It seems like uh, Trump has closed a little bit, uh, really since he started doing the COVID-19 briefings again and doing so in a scripted way, in a concise way, a few questions, and then it's time to get off on the stage and move it along. Uh, and, and, it, and, and so the question becomes, you know, if this race uh, stays relatively tight, uh, even before the debates, it's going to be impossible for Joe Biden to continue to hide out in his basement. And isn't that really when the campaign begins, when Joe Biden is forced to be evac out of his basement and actually be a candidate, at least in some parts on the trail in front of actual American citizens, actual human beings? That's when we're really going to see if Biden can hold up over the next uh, 10 weeks or not. Well, I think that's right. I never put any stock in summertime polls. They're always wrong. They don't mean anything, really. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The polls have been tightening. Uh, but the bottom line, in, in my opinion, is the American people are not going to elect as president a man who is visibly mentally impaired and who I think pretty obviously isn't capable of carrying out the duties of the job. I mean, I think that it's just not going to happen. We've never seen a presidential candidate as terrible as Joe Biden, even Hillary Clinton was better than Joe Biden, and, and the Democrats can't hide him forever. Now, are they lucky that COVID-19 came along and allowed Biden to hole up, hole up in his basement for a couple of months? Absolutely. But, you know, he's got to show up for some debates, I think. Uh, he's got to be interviewed by some reporters. He's got to appear in public. And I don't think his condition is hard to spot. Now, uh, it seems to me on the debates, uh, Democrats are making the mistakes some Republicans, including the president, are making in terms of not controlling expectations uh, with respect to how well President Trump will do against Biden. Democrats making that mistake with respect to Pence and Kamala Harris. You know, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. Mike Pence isn't in Kamala Harris's league intellectually and so on and so forth. You know, there's a reason that she came into the primary with such high expectations and, you know, had to slink out under the cover of darkness with two percent of the vote. And it's because she's wildly unlikable and smug and smarmy. And as you said, inauthentic, transparently inauthentic. And I'll tell you, Mike Pence in troubled times, he's vanilla. He's boring. He's not charismatic. You know what he is? He's steady and he's like a sponge when you attack him. He just absorbs it and he continues to be focused on being other regarding in his messaging. I think actually Mike Pence is the perfect antidote to somebody like Kamala. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, he's certainly competent. Uh, he's certainly uh, solid enough uh, on his feet uh, for purposes of, of a debate with, with Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, it, it, one of the things, if you look back through history, um, there are, have not been very mo many moments in debates that have made much difference. And it's part of the process by which voters size up the candidates. It can be important, but um, expectations count for a lot. One of the things the Democrats and the press are going to do is to try to uh, 
place that placed the bar so low for Joe Biden, you know, in terms of what to expect in the debates, that if he's still upright when the right. debate is over, they're going to say, "Wow, that was better than we expected." Right? No, I know, <laughs> I know. This is why Republicans should be playing the same game and saying, "Look, he's been there forty years. He's a seasoned uh, uh, debater. He's debated many times. He did very well against Paul Ryan in the vice presidential debates of 2012. This is a, a formidable." debater and that's what the republicans should be saying not that he's you know out on his feet <laughs> you're just playing into their expectation game well i think that's correct um but but the bottom line is what do the voters think when they see biden in action and the debates are part of that story but they're not the whole story and and uh unless i'm really missing the mark i think the voters are going to see a guy who is uh, way past his prime who does not have his full wits about him and pretty obviously is not capable of of serving as president and the reality is you know we're all we're already seeing that in some poll results yeah even though the newspapers try to keep it a secret the word has leaked out and people are generally aware of biden's condition and and even the casual observers uh one way or another are going to be aware of it well before november he is John Hendraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Bye-bye. Listen to podcasts of the show at DanProfShow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I really like what Trump and Pence are doing in elevating school choice and opportunity scholarships. It was included in the Senate's uh, proposal for phase four COVID reform and COVID aid, I should say, 10 percent of the one hundred five billion dollars in that legislation for school reopenings was for opportunity scholarships so that people would not be discriminated against based on their household address and their household income, which is what happens around the country now, particularly in big cities. And there are some exceptions, of course, like Milwaukee, where there's a school choice tradition that's 30 years running now. But um, President Trump uh, was very clear on what he thinks should be done with uh, relief money for schools if the schools don't want to open and educate kids. I'd like to see the money follow the student. If a school is going to be closed and we're giving all of this money on the federal basis to a school, And if a student is going to go to a different school, uh, really at the choice more of the parent, in all fairness, than the student, you know, where you want to go and what school you want to bring the student to, I think the money should follow the student. And that's something that we want to do. We're having a hard time with the Democrats. They want the money to follow the union. It's a great choice, a great framing of the choice. Should the money follow the student or should the money follow the union? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. Um, We've talked about this before on the show, but it's been a minute. When you think about uh, states like Texas and uh, excuse me, well, Texas, yes, too. But um, Florida and Arizona is mainly what I was thinking. Rick Scott and uh, Doug Ducey in Arizona, two successful governors now, of course, given way to Ron DeSantis in Florida and DeSantis, too. Same deal. Um, You could easily make the case that I will make. That the reason Rick Scott won close elections, the reason Ron DeSantis won a close election for governor there is because of the opportunity scholarship programs in Florida 
the Opportunity Scholarship Program, same thing with Doug Ducey. And you see it reflected in Doug Ducey and Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis getting above average percentages of both black and Latino voters in their respective states. Uh, And again, it is uh, disproportionately black and Latino families that are benefiting from opportunity scholarships. So school choice, I I think, with school openings being such a political football right now and probably right through the November 3rd election, This is a real opportunity to do two good things. One is politically for Trump to advance a position that he has held and attempted to advance, including through the work of Betsy DeVos, the secretary of education. And uh, secondly, and frankly, more importantly, is to provide opportunities to tens of thousands. I don't know, maybe even millions of families who have been denied opportunities based on their household income and their address in cities and communities throughout America. Nice twofer. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Julio Gonzalez. He's national tax reform expert and CEO of Engineer Tax Services. Julio, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So I just before we get into some of the uh, green eye shade stuff, I just wanted to get your take on um, on that aspect of it. School choice. And, and, you know, frankly, that's an economic issue in addition to a an educational one. Uh, and and the uh, position the Trump administration is taking and how pronounced they should be in terms of making this a central theme of their campaign, particularly as it pertains to Latino voters. Yeah, they're doing a tremendous job. And like you said, we're lucky here in Florida where I live, and Ron DeSantis is doing a great job with school choice, and we're really fortunate to have him leading us here, and that especially for the Latinos, especially throughout the state here. Uh, when we t- talk about... Um, this piece that uh, you penned, uh, I saw at FloridaDaily.com, Joe Biden won't get away with ignoring Latino voters, uh, Latino voices, I should say, and by extension, Latino voters. Um, what is it uh, that you think uh, is going to turn off Latino voters when it comes to uh, Joe Biden's uh, philosophy or specific positions on economic matters? Well, I think, you know, doubling the tax rate is what he said he's going to do right when he gets into office. I mean, you know, a lot of us are entrepreneurs, and certainly uh, we want the government relationship to be a good one, a low tax rate system that helps us invest in our companies and grow our companies. And elevating that tax rate and, you know, putting back the regulation is going to be difficult for all our businesses. And uh, w- with respect to the, the uh, Florida in particular, you know, there's uh, some who've suggested that um, uh, Florida's no, uh, Florida is uh, no longer a swing state. It's going to be a Joe Biden state, and that's going to be uh, determinative of the presidential election. They point to how close uh, Gillum got to defeating DeSantis two years ago where, you know, some of the more recent polling. And they just suggest that Trump has so turned off minority voters in this hyper charged uh, politically uh, racial racial politics sort of environment we're in that uh, Florida is going to go the way of the Democrats this go around. Yeah, I don't I don't see that at all. I mean, certainly uh we were able to uh vote for him in 2016. I think that momentum will stay especially with the Latino uh voters who a lot of them are small business owners, a lot of them have seen their paychecks increase and I think that's a big thing for all of us seeing more money in our banks, accounts and obviously the more opportunities that we've had in business as well. Mhm. What about uh, some of the um 
statements that were made. Uh, one prospective VP candidate for Biden that he passed on was Karen Bass, the former House Speaker of the state of California, now a member of Congress, who um, had a history of being uh, very uh, complimentary to uh, the Castro regime in Cuba. I know Cubans tend to be more Republican, generally speaking, but there's also this motivation issue, you know, participation thresholds. And I wonder what you're seeing down there in terms of the um, the enthusiasm to come out and vote for President Trump or maybe just even to vote against Joe Biden and the Democrats and, and the positions they take that are at odds with significant portions of the population there. Yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, a lot of us come from Cuba here. You know, we're either first generation, second or third generation down here in South Florida. And we know that those comments that were said in those relationships are not not for us, right? I mean, it's slavery there. And uh, getting out of that environment and going back to a socialistic system here with Biden is not something we're going to vote for. You have uh, people were surprised in 2016 that President Trump got to basically the same percentage of the Latino vote nationally that uh, Mitt Romney did, which is about 29, 30 percent. You think that he can improve upon that? You think that the Latino vote could be uh, the difference maker in some of the swing states like Florida, New Mexico, Nevada, others? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, we collectively, you know, first of all, we want you know, good taxes and good economy, those are important to us. We want security and safety, and I think we all feel much safer here. And we all came here from Cuba, from South America, from the different islands, you know, legitimately, and we want all that because we saw what happened, you know, in the 70s and 80s here in South Florida when, you know, Castro released the prisoners, and we took them in, and Carter took in all the other island people, and we basically got devastated here in South Florida. All the crime came up, the drug came out, and everyone left Miami. We're finally coming back to Miami. We're starting to see the revitalization finally, and uh, we certainly don't want to go back to those days. So the opposition to the wall, the support for abolishing ICE, uh, you don't think that those positions have much currency among Latino voters? I think we're big supporters of what Trump's doing in those policies. He is Julio Gonzalez, national tax reform expert, CEO of Engineer Tax Services. Julio, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Here's a bit of an underreported, perhaps underappreciated aspect of uh, the uh, COVID-19 related lockdowns. Alcohol sales, access to even. Analysis from the National Alcohol Beverage Control Association finds that um, sales of alcohol declined in um, a a very government-driven alcohol sales system in Pennsylvania declined 4.6%, but in other 16, uh, in another 16 straight states that are controlled states, meaning, you know, government essentially sanction of and and operation of liquor stores, the uh, sales climbed an average of 13 percent. So did uh, five times better, four times better than Pennsylvania. What's happening in Pennsylvania? Uh, One analyst from the Commonwealth Foundation observed that local small businesses, including restaurants, hotel shops, event planners, wineries and distributors are all constrained in some way by bureaucracy. The fact that the governor Democrat in this case, Tom Wolf, 
could uh, stop over 90 percent of all liquor sales on a whim shows just how much of a grip the agency, the Liquor Control Board there, has on so much of Pennsylvania's economy. Uh, This uh, leads me, at least in part, to a piece in uh, Jacobin, of all places, uh, jacobinmag.com, by Miles Kampf Lassen, who goes uh, almost biblical on us. And it wasn't quite let my people go, but let us drink in public, writes Miles Kampf Lassen, or drink it all if you're in Pennsylvania. He is the web editor of In These Times, and he joins us now. Miles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Not surprisingly, in Jacobin Magazine, you uh, make the argument for let us drink in public from sort of a a class perspective that uh, the uh, prohibitions against uh, open containers in public is uh, disproportionately targeted to to, uh, lower and and, uh, working income people. That's right. I think that especially right now, there's really two key reasons that at this moment we as a country should move forward toward changing our laws around alcohol to permit public drinking, which is the you know case I make in the piece. And the first reason is that this COVID pandemic, I think, makes very clear that indoor spaces are largely unsafe, at least in areas where, you know, they're poorly ventilated and in locations where the virus is still circulating. So, you know, just allowing people to take their beverages outdoors where there's less likelihood of virus spread to me. And I think to most people, that's just common sense. And number two is that, you know, there's this current disparity in enforcement of public drinking ordinances. And that I think makes very clear that the intent of the laws has uh, always been to allow police who are acting on behalf of the federal government, you know, those are whose laws they're enforcing, giving them the right to hassle, cite, and even arrest those who uh, they see fit. So we're now already seeing cities and municipalities, including Chicago, uh, change their drinking laws to allow for things like to-go cocktails. Right. You know, now people need a place to drink them. So I think it only makes sense to give people license to take their drinks outdoors. I think adapting to this pandemic is going to require changes both to our behavior and to our laws. Uh, I think this is a clear and place to start. And you're right that I make the case, you know, kind of from a left wing, more class based perspective. But I think across the political perspective, folks can get behind a a cause like this, you know, Reason Magazine, which is not the same as Jacobin, you know, they're more of a kind of libertarian focused uh, publication. Uh, They published a very similar article uh, a few months ago, making a similar case. So I don't think that this is an instance where it's necessarily, you know, sharp political lines between the left and the right. I think all of us can uh, get behind the cause of wanting to be able to uh, drink in peace. But is there a difference between, uh, say, uh, having a picnic in the park, a public park, so, you know, public access, you go to the package goods store, you get uh, yourself a bottle of wine or or a case of beer, whatever you want, and you go to a public park versus, say, being a wino on a street corner, if I'm even allowed to say that anymore. Sure. So I think a lot of people might get in their heads this concept of, you know, if we change our laws, everything will become Bourbon Street in New Orleans. You know, that uh, it, it'll <laughs> will be reduced to mayhem in the streets. Uh, I just don't think that holds up when you look at other places, even within the United States, that have these uh, open drinking uh, allowances. So places like Sonoma, California and Hood River, Oregon, you know, these are more like quiet cities, hamlets even. 
Uh, and it's not this type of uh, bedlam. It's actually, you know, people are that, that report often higher qualities of life. And that's certainly true in other places like Quebec and Canada and countries like France, Germany, Italy. All these places have laws that allow for public drinking and they have not, you know, devolved into uh, broken bottles everywhere. And, you know, the, the kind of horror stories that people uh, often have come to mind. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to uh continue uh, on this path because you also do invoke the idea of broken windows policing that uh, some of these ordinances are a part of. And, and I want to expand our conversation to talk a little bit more about that. More with Miles Camp Lassen. He's the web editor of In These Times and uh, the author of this Let Us Drink in Public piece in Jacobin Mag at jacobinmag.com that we're discussing. And we will continue to write up. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We are uh, joined by Miles Camp Lass, and he is a web editor, uh, the web editor for In These Times, and. Uh, He's written this piece about uh, drinking in public. It's one of these things that we, you wouldn't think much of. Why should we concern ourselves with? But uh, I think you do have a point about the idea of uh, enjoying the outdoors. Uh, and uh, in a an, an, uh, situation now where in so many cities uh, you have uh, bars and restaurants shuttered or at uh, a small fraction of their capacity, you don't have access to, to those sorts of spaces as much. You know, the idea of uh, being able to uh, enjoy a mature libation outside uh, shouldn't result in, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, an ordinance violation uh, and, uh, and some ordinance violations that can be quite costly to people that are uh, lower income. So I think that's actually a fair point. But you bring up, uh, Miles, in your piece that, um, you know, this is these, these sorts of ordinances are part of sort of broken windows policing. You know, little things can be indicative of big things or lead to big things if you don't address the little things, things like graffiti and so forth. And the same thing here, the argument against vagrancy, for example. Isn't there something to that? Aren't we seeing uh, the results of a walk away from broken policing, uh, broken windows policing in some big cities uh, actually uh, work out like the advocates of broken windows policing suggested they would if you walked away from it? Well, if you just look at uh, New York City, for example, I think that, you know, stop and frisk was a policy that was largely uh, condemned. And I think part of the reason that Bill de Blasio was able to win the office of mayor years ago, when you look at right now, I mean, there were statistics that just came out looking back from beginning of January to August and 91 percent of public drinking tickets were handed out to uh, black and Latino New Yorkers in that time period. This is, you know, during this six month period while the pandemic was raging. And let's be clear, I mean, you, you pointed out that this can be costly. In, in Chicago, it's $100 to $500 uh, yeah. is the yeah. cost for the ticket. And it's up to six months in prison if a judge determines that's your sentence. So, you know, there's a very serious outcome that's not just, you know, you pay 25 bucks and you're good to go or something. This can have a really big impact. And I think it's important to note that this isn't just the enforcement of the law. This was baked into the intent of these laws. So I quote a sponsor of the initial bill 
in New York City that banned public drinking in 1979. And, and the sponsor of the bill said, quote, we did not recklessly expect the police to give a summons to a con ed worker having a beer with his lunch. This is for those young hoodlums with wine bottles who harass our women and intimidate our senior citizens. So when we look at how these laws were what came to be, many of them did actually evolve from former vagrancy or public drunkenness laws that were ultimately ruled unconstitutional in the 1960s and led us to this new regime of public drinking enforcement. And the way it has been carried out is part of this larger trend of broken windows policing that treats it as a stepping stone towards further criminality, essentially. The issue with that is, you know, as I said, if you look to other places where they don't have these laws, they haven't devolved into places that are overrun with criminality or something. It's just people much like you see at, you know, Millennium Park or, you know, any public park where people are picnicking and having wine, as you said, those things are just allowed. It's just you, we don't often see the, where the enforcement is taking place, which is in these uh, march, much more marginalized communities, such as communities of color. Although enforcement isn't taking uh, much of anything, isn't taking place in a lot of big cities. Uh, you just had uh, the uh, report yesterday that a couple hundred uh, individuals charged with much more serious matters than uh, drinking in public. Uh, are having uh, are 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 having those charges against them dismissed in Portland? Uh, we've got a problem in Chicago with uh, sort of the same situation again with much more serious crimes. Uh, five, I mean, you talk about five hundred dollar fine for drinking in public. We had somebody uh, from the rioting uh, just a few days ago and the looting and the thievery and the violence uh, who is uh, charged with felony aggravated battery of a police officer resisting arrest and. Uh, the prosecutor said they intended him to charge him with looting related charges as well. Five hundred dollar bond to get out. So, I mean, in terms of proportionality, you have a point on the the idea that those charges should merit a five hundred dollar bond and drinking in public should potentially merit a five hundred dollar administrative ordinance ticket. I, I get what you're saying there. But by the same token, in these in these times, to borrow a phrase, you have tickets being given for not wearing a mask. You have uh you have public officials uh, arguing about uh, who want to shutter restaurants and then are ticketing people who are having like curbside uh, gatherings after closing hours or because restaurants are closed altogether. All and so it becomes a little bit more complicated right now with respect to uh, the inf- the equal enforcement of law, who is getting cited for what uh, in with with the intersection between the desire for uh, streets to be peaceful and uh, the uh, lockdown policies that are being advanced by various politicians? Well, I think there's been a completely nonsensical approach to um, public policy as it concerns our use of public space during this pandemic, and specifically, you know, this issue of food and beverages and how we want to, you know, build uh, alternatives to the, our, you know, we have shut down certain establishments and pushed people outdoors. And then you, clo- you and, and then and one other thing too, just to add, and then I'll I'll let you finish. But closing public spaces too, when you close parks and you close lakefronts and you close playgrounds and so forth. Sure, and these are the pl- very places that uh, are, you know, by all accounts, by you know, experts and uh, uh, scientists and epidemiologists say that these are the safest places to be uh, right now. Are areas where there's wind flow, where it's outdoors. That's where transmission is going to be the lowest. And as you just said, these are the places that are getting um, shut down. And I believe that it's clearly an economic incentive. I'll give you a quick anecdote. Of, I was at the lakefront uh, over the weekend on uh, near Lawrence uh, Avenue in Chicago on the. Uh, um, on the front of Lake Michigan, and the police were clearing it out. 
And the uh, police officer said, you know, people were protesting and saying we should we should be allowed to be out here. And I'm sure some but plenty of them were, were having beverages as well. But he said, you know, what I, what we he said, I don't want to be doing this. But we were told the mayor says go to the bar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get this kind of uh, public policy advice from our political leaders that say, you know, go spend money. But you, they want you to do it in a place that's going to uh, potentially risk your and other people's health when a space like a lakefront is much safer when it comes to, uh, you know, how you would be enjoying your time and certainly where you would be enjoying your alcoholic beverages. So I think it's a pretty nonsensical approach and something like relaxing open container laws is a clear common sense response to that that would give people more of a sense of, oh, this is this makes sense to me now. So that's what I think we should be getting behind right now. He is Miles Camp Lassen. He is the web editor of In These Times, and uh, you can check out his piece at jacobinmag.com. Let us drink in public, which I will uh, tweet out at Dan Proctor as well. Miles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. In a recent interview, the great economist uh, Thomas Sowell had this to say about the prospect of a uh, Joe Biden presidency. Well, what I, what I see is that if the, the uh, election go, goes to Biden, that, that there's, there's a good chance that the Democrats will then control all three, all, all the two branches of Congress and the White House. And considering the kinds of things that they're proposing, uh, that could well be the point of no return for this country. And what about reparations? Reparations as a part of that point of no return were the Democrat socialists to take over both houses of Congress, both chambers, as well as the White House. Reparations, you know, uh, Kamala Harris has been uh, a little bit cagey on it. I initially branded her reparation age because of her support for reparations and because, uh, you know, it invokes something that's hemorrhoidal, a pain in your backside. Um, Some reason Kamala uh, called to mind that for me, golly, I don't know why. Well, um, uh, she has said uh, lawyerly things on this topic, like on all topics. Uh, I'm serious about taking an approach that would change policies and structures and make real investments in black communities. Uh, Some form, she said she supported some form of reparations for black people, but she was unclear of what it would take. Then she later said, um, she's talking about um, things like her tax credit proposal for low-income families. I think the word, the term reparations, it means different things to different people. Uh, okay. Uh, this is what you get from phony Kamala Harris. Trump was on to something. Um, but the other thing that's fun about this topic, and hopefully it'll come up in the debates again, perhaps even on the campaign trail, if there's going to be one that is... Um, not totally Zoom dependent, is that uh, Kamala Harris uh, touting as an African-American female candidate for vice president. Uh, she is a payer or a payee on the topic of reparations. You know, uh, last year it was reported on Mitch McConnell's ancestry and that his ancestors owned slaves. His response was a, a pithy one, good one. 
and something else that uh, Barack Obama and I have in common. Both uh, both of our ancestors owned slaves, and both of us are opposed to reparations. That's what McConnell said. But uh, it turns out, reporting around the same time, but uh, everything is new again with Kamala, we find out that uh, Kamala's, the descendant of an Irishman who owned a slave plantation in Jamaica, according to the lengthy ancestral summary of her father, Donald Harris, who's a Stanford University economics professor, revealing in 2018 that his grandmother was a descendant of Hamilton Brown, the namesake of Brownstown in northern Jamaica. Uh, He said, he wrote in a a local newspaper, Jamaica Global, my roots go back within my lifetime to my paternal grandmother, Miss Chrissy, nay Christina, Christiana Brown, descendant of Hamilton Brown, who is on record as plantation and slave owner and founder of Brownstown. So, yeah, as I say, this reparations thing gets gets complicated. Can you imagine Kamala Harris having to write a check rather than receive one? This is Dan Proff. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft Show on social media. And uh, we discussed this piece a bit with uh, Noah Rothman from Commentary Magazine yesterday on yesterday's program. He uh, was not in agreement with Julius Krein about conservatism. Julius Krein is the editor of American Affairs, and he uh, wrote this um, rather provocative piece. Conservatism is a collection of losers. It doesn't have to be. This at TheAmericanConservative.com, in which he says, in a pertinent part, just to provide the thesis, today's conservatism is merely the name used to categorize the rejects of the post-Cold War order. This includes a few oddball financiers who can't play nicely with others. Mm, extractive industries and other declining sectors and the small businesses most relying on low-wage, low-skill labor and a group often referred to as social conservatives who have been almost totally marginalized from mainstream culture. Uh, He uh, goes on to suggest that uh, what must be overcome for conservatives and conservatism is the false pretension of defending or restoring established authority, which is inherent to any notion of conservatism. Conservatives must honestly confront the fact that every benevolent order they have claimed to be conserving for at least a quarter century, whether it is the perfect pre-New Deal free market of their imagination or the original Constitution, quote-unquote, or a, quote-unquote, Judeo-Christian nation, is long gone. And he suggests that new possibilities are opening up for conservatives to focus on wielding political power and not just content themselves with being I guess marginalized debating societies is how he would term it, or certainly that's a caricature of it I got from his piece. Maybe that's unfair. Let's ask him. Julius Krein, editor of American Affairs, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let me just start with Noah Rothman's argument, which you're probably familiar with. He uh, basically says it's uh, cherry-picking, and there are certainly conservative, quote-unquote conservative institutions like uh, marriage, which is on the uptick, conservative uh, positions like pro-life that are on the ascent among the young. So while certainly the academy and some cultural institutions have been banished, have banished conservatives effectively, uh, not everything is bad news for conservatism. Well, I suppose one can 
content oneself with some stats, but even on those points, that seems pretty weak. I think out of wedlock childbirth in the U.S. is something like 40%, extremely high numbers, especially in some groups. Even on the pro-life stuff, you can point to, say, maybe certain states, certain small red states that have tightened abortion restrictions, but the most powerful, wealthiest, most populous states certainly going in the other direction. And those are just a few single issue items when it comes to actually determining the uh, content of culture and so on. I would say the picture is much bleaker, even if you just look at something like the ubiquity of pornography, for example, or something like that. I think to say that you're winning the culture war requires a lot of self-delusion. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't argue that we're winning the culture war, but, but maybe there's a sort of a, a foundational issue that needs to be settled here between some like you, I think, and some like Rothman, which is, it seems to me there's a couple of camps here. Uh, one is sort of the Richard Weaver, Whitaker Chambers camp that begins by acknowledging we're on the losing side. And the other is sort of the optimistic camp that believes that in uh, some respects we're really on the winning side and we are ascendant even if it doesn't look like it at the moment in some respects so there's always some some qualifying of the optimism but it's nonetheless uh, fundamentally optimistic and uh, one would argue probably including me that the weaver chamber side is a little bit more convincing particularly from a historical perspective yeah i suppose i personally am not terribly interested in that question because focusing too much on what conservatism means or what the right disposition is, I think those are frankly trivial issues. Mm -hmm. The important issues are actually the ones facing the country, and that includes the total deindustrialization of the U.S., which increasingly is having an impact even on technological leadership and competition, specifically with China. The financialization of the economy and widening inequality, which itself contributes to the fraying of the social network and also probably weakening families and all of that. So, so I, I think if you want to talk about what conservatism means, that's a lot of fun for people, especially when they get paid to sit in think tanks and argue about this. I don't think it addresses the, re the real problems at all. And I, I don't, I'm not directing that at you. I'm no, 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 I get it. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I hear the, the idea that, you know, we need to be practical problem solvers, and I don't disagree with that. I also... Uh, though do agree that, you know, having some knowledge of Richard Weaver and having some sort of philosophical basis can make you a better problem solver because you have a broader perspective and you've considered some things. And maybe you can help explain why we're beset by some of the practical problems that we have now and, and the direction that we could go. That's sort of my larger point. So in terms of some of these matters, so the deindustrialization of the economy, the financialization of it uh, uh, that you were describing, then, then what is the approach? What is the approach that the practical conservative problem solver, the solutionist, should be articulating to make the idea of conservatism more popular, more, more appealing to a wider swath of the electorate? Yeah. Focus on the problems. Look at what other countries have done. How did Taiwan go from not having a semiconductor industry at all to having the best in the world? And how did the U.S. go from having the best in the world to basically barely having any semiconductor manufacturing at all? You can do the same with any other advanced manufacturing industry from how did Boeing, who can't make an airplane that flies, all that other stuff. And while I think studying Richard Weaver is not a bad thing, it's a good thing for people to do in college or whatever, it's not going to help you solve any of those problems. The bigger issue, though, uh, which is not simply an academic one, is what coalition are you actually a part of? What 
donor base, what political base, what economic base is actually going to help you address these? The alliance with the sort of Paul Singer financiers and Koch brothers libertarians is not actually going to help you address any of these questions, never mind uh, social conservative issues. So you have to ask, where is there any base whatsoever in the economy, uh, in, in, in the actual people that wield power in this country? And how are you going to take advantage of that? Right now, there isn't much of one. Uh, and so you have to refocus on some of these more practical issues, use what power you have in the political sphere to try to build up that base that maybe someday could be used uh, to tackle these larger problems of what we call conservatism. Well, so is, is uh, Trump been successful in helping us in that direction then with, say, the NFIB entrepreneur and, and some of the uh, blue-collar trade unionists? Well, I would say that the trade deal with China was broadly successful, and I would say there's you know a few stabs in the right direction. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't really know the answer. Trump has had a very hard time sort of systematically pursuing the agenda that he set forward in 2016 that he won on in 2016, and you know has spent a lot of time appointing people that end up resigning or being fired and then writing scathing books about him. And, uh, you know, the administration is riven by all kinds of fractures. And, you know, a lot of people are more loyal to, you know, Romney Ryan or, you know, the no. Reagan 9.0 agenda. And okay. it, it's been difficult, I think, for the Trump administration to actually systematically pursue and put together a group of people that want to go in a different direction. But he's certainly, there are some things that I would be quite uh, worthy of praise, in my opinion. But so, I mean, so, you know, part of uh, putting together a coalition is, is Red Rover, Red Rover, people over. And so that means you have to identify who you actually want to be in, with in your camp, uh, where you think there are synergies or or a common purpose. And so so what are some of those constituent groups, broadly speaking, that you see that need to be brought into the fold for conservatism to be ascendant? Uh, there probably is a some opportunity among organized labor or what's left of it. Uh, I would say both sides, uh, both whatever you want to call them, populist Republicans or whatever, as well as the kind of establishment within organized labor have have held that back or, or not been maybe as enthusiastic about that coalition as they should be. Um, but in general, the more the most interesting and also the most complicated ones are the underlying fractures on the left. Uh, and this is where effectively what conservatism does is it stands in and pretends to be the establishment. It pretends to be the authority, even though it's very weak. And this allows the actual dominant part of the country, the tech oligarchs and so on, uh, who are nominally on the left, to pretend that they're the real uh, progressives and all of that, even though they are the establishment. And so if conservatism stopped pretending uh, that it's, you know, it's really the establishment, I think you would actually see uh, a greater amount of fracturing within the left, uh, and you might have a better chance at building a, uh, a more promising coalition uh, going forward. When we come back with Julius Krein, I want to discuss whether or not he thinks the new conservative coalition that needs to be built can be built uh, inside the system, or does it need to come from outside the system, or is it some combination of the two? And by the system, I mean effectively the beltway. More with Julius Krein when we return. Why don't we steal away? Why don't we steal away into the night? 
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Julius Krein, editor of American Affairs, talking about his piece that uh, conservatism is a collection of losers at present, but it doesn't have to be that way. And um, uh, picking up from where we were before the break, uh, when uh, you and I, really, perhaps not completely in alignment, but somewhat alignment, certainly on the matter of uh, openly breaking from the Chamber of Commerce, uh, that's what you were suggesting, break from the Chamber of Commerce break from the Senate majority leader, break from these, you know, inside the beltway politicians and so forth and say that uh, this is a coalition of, uh, I don't know, one way I would describe it. People who play by the rules in this country have a stake in the game and no representation in the system and sort of attack from the outside. I would certainly break with the sort of Chamber of Commerce agenda and that kind of full libertarian agenda, which fundamentally um, is at this point, the Republican Party is doing more for private equity and hedge funds than anybody. And hedge funds and private equity give more money to Democrats. I mean, it's actually it's, it's the most contradictory to self-interest as one can get. So you need to break with that and stop pretending that you're rich because the Republican base is not rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a sort of it's somewhere between the kind of lower middle class to fairly wealthy middle class. You know, the parts of the left that they, they still have to, for various reasons of their own ideological uh, legitimacy and so on, need to pretend that they care about these groups. But right now the Republicans allow them to do that while actually benefiting the, uh, the wealthiest oligarchs in the country. It, it seems like uh, out of necessity, even though it should also be out of desire, that we'll have to include bigger percentages of minority families around the country and it, it would seem to me one particular issue where you align interests is school choice. And this may be a moment in time because of the approach that centralized, centrally planned school districts are taking to educating kids where you could really advance the flag on school choice. It seems to have uh, been particularly instrumental in Republican victories in places like Arizona and Florida that have somewhat developed school choice programs where the the left candidate is committed to the teachers union. Therefore, they can't be for opportunity scholarships for thousands of families who have them and are voting their children's interests, not necessarily their uh, default partisan affiliation. It is school choice in that area. Is that a, a good mission field for this sort of new coalition of conservatives? I definitely think there's a whole suite of family policies and family issues in general uh, that Republicans should be more focused on. I don't claim to be an expert on education policy, so I'm, I'm going to punt on the school choice specific uh, policy question, though I think in directionally what you're talking about makes sense to me. But certainly, you know, Republicans have talked for a long time about how a lot of, you know, new immigrants and all of that are socially conservative, very pro-family culture, all of this stuff. And yet, you know, they don't vote Republican. Now, maybe that's identity politics related. I don't think so. A lot of it is actually that the Republican Party has refused to match any economic policy uh, with its family rhetoric. In fact, it runs the opposite economic policy. So, for example, as Tucker Carlson has spoken about a lot, there's vast constituencies in the country that want to have more children, that want to be able to raise their own children, that don't want to have to have both parents working all the time, um, and so on. 
And the Republican Party in recent years has done a little bit on, say, child care tax credits and stuff like that. But there's no reason to have a, a whole a, a much more ambitious agenda centered around um, supporting families. For example, what they have done in places like Hungary, where you actually just give a child allowance to families, which, of course, they can use to for third party uh, child care if they want, but which also makes it a lot easier for uh, one parent to stay home and raise their own children. But do you want to go in the direction of uh, direct transfer payments to families for this service or or that service? Do you want to go into you know government financing of directly of child care? I, I mean, go so far as some libertarians have uh, suggested, which is the Andrew Yang, the minimum basic income, universal basic income. I mean, do we want to go in that direction where we're sort of guaranteeing certain things that uh, are ostensibly pro-family, but are coming through the one institution that seeks to intervene in the family, and that's government. Well, government should be intervening for the family. The question is not, are we going to have a welfare state? We're going to have a welfare state. Mm -hmm. And given the shape, the, the underlying structure of the current economy, for the foreseeable future, we will likely have a growing welfare state. Just look at what has happened with COVID and all of this. The question is not, are we going to have a welfare state or not? The question is, is that welfare going to be structured around something like supporting families? Or is it going to be structured around, you know, purely individual uh, factors, which tends to contribute to more and more uh, atomization and, and all the things you describe. The Republicans and the conservatives have taken the view that we should just get rid of the welfare state. I would say that has totally failed. It's contributed even more to the things they claim to be fighting against. A much better approach would simply be to redirect the welfare state to support families and uh, stronger communities and so on. Yeah, but, but how do you uh, properly align incentives in a productive way if you're incentivizing people, say, for example, to not work? Well, you're not incentivizing. You make the family the unit, the household the unit that gets the welfare and not the individual. So, so you're you, not incentivizing people to not work. You're incentivizing people to not work outside the home. So, uh, but, but so if you, they're taking care of their children, they're not being. That's not. They're not not working. I don't think taking care of a child is not. That's a, that's a real work. Well, you're just making that economically available to them. Well, that's what I wanted to flesh out. So, I mean, in other words, you would you would try to align welfare state policy that incentivize uh, family intactness rather than family dissolution, which is what the welfare state does now. Yes. And so one of the things you could do is say, you know, if, if mom and dad are there, then uh, we're going to provide a benefit for mom to stay home and raise the kids. That's, for example, or dad to stay home and raise the kids. And, but you, you yeah, any, 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 that's a, which parent does that as an internal family decision, right, right. but yes, yeah. So the welfare state is one aspect of it. What about in terms of other benefits that uh, you are know, argued by the left are rights? And do you, for example, health insurance, for example, education. Do we get into this business now where we're starting from the same premise of the left with respect to these things being rights, rights provided by that are now provided by government? And uh, then it's just an argument about how we're financing those rights. You know, again, you're looking at it from a very sort of metaphysical approach, what a right is, all of that. That's an interesting thing for people to debate academically. The reality is we have Medicare in this country. It's not going away. What we have created is sort of the worst of both worlds, of both a private system and a public system for healthcare. It's the most expensive healthcare system in the world. It doesn't particularly do a great job. Its main beneficiaries are 
the shareholders of large pharma companies and the private equity owners of healthcare systems. You can look at a place like Australia or Taiwan or Singapore or Switzerland where they provide catastrophic baseline level of care through the government. And then you have some other private extras that you can add on. Uh, and obviously, healthcare policy is very complicated, so that's a very rough loss. But if you want to, you know, be afraid of that, you can. But when I look at them, I see countries that spend, you know, six, seven, eight, ten percent of their GDP instead of close to twenty to deliver better outcomes. Uh, and people have a lot more comfort, you know, if they want to stay home and raise children or leave their job to become an entrepreneur, they have the ability to do that. He is Julius Krein. He's the editor of American Affairs, and I will uh, post his uh, piece, Conservatives as a Collection of Losers. It doesn't have to be for uh, further discussion online. Julius, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Don't you know I'm still on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Earlier in the program, we had uh, Dr. Gary Slepkin on, former director of intervention for the WHO, epidemiologist. And uh, we got into a bit of a row, as we have previously, over uh, this uh, mask mandating, this... uh, mask as panacea, as well as um, Dr. Slutkin's relatively uh, risk-averse recommendations, I think is generous when it comes to uh, closing bars and restaurants. He does not personally go to retail stores either. He doesn't feel those are safe enough. He doesn't fly. He doesn't believe it's safe enough to fly yet either. He suggests that in areas where there is some substantial outbreak, which is sort of on a case-by-case basis for him, that schools should not be opened either. Basically, you're talking about more or less a total lockdown for the foreseeable future until we have a vaccine and that vaccine proves particularly effective. Or herd immunity and herd immunity, he didn't say this, but I would say this, uh, herd immunity that that turns out to be particularly enduring, and the jury's out on that even were there to be a general belief that there had been, that it had uh, advanced significantly to the point where we were talking about herd immunity as being a reality. It's just remarkable, uh, the reactions here and the whack-a-mole and most of the recriminations coming from so many public health experts being, if only we had locked down more, because uh, many European countries, you know, had 90% of their economy locked down, where, say, America was more like 50%. We really missed out. Those same experts that refuse to acknowledge or address the Swedish model, even some of the other Nordic countries with respect to schooling and what we're seeing in the real world, in practice, in many countries. I I don't know how to get through to people that otherwise present as reasonable on some of these topics. Perhaps our next guest can help. She is Lionel Shriver. She's an award-winning author. She's a contributor to The Spectator. And uh, her recent, uh, most recent book is The Motion of the Body Through Space. Lionel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Do you uh, share my frustration with trying to get through to otherwise seemingly reasonable people? Yeah, we're definitely in a minority. I published a column recently which uh, I titled, 
I have herd immunity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm lacking some gene. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You also wrote recently that uh, never has a virus been so oversold. You'd like to sign on with COVID's agent. Yeah, what a publicity budget. The central point of that column was that there is nothing unprecedented about this virus. It is a novel virus, but we have faced novel viruses before. In uh, 19, I think it was 1958. 57 um, and 68, yeah. Seven, yeah. The, there was the, uh, uh, the Asian flu, and uh, it, it killed millions of people. And by the way, people think that COVID has killed millions of people already, and it hasn't. Um, the total world death toll, the last time I checked, it was around 700,000. So, and I don't mean to say that's nothing, but you have to put it in perspective. And I think, you know, if you haven't looked up the figures, you're not aware of how many people die all the time. In 2019, 58 million people died. So you can see that if you add 700,000, it's hardly going to register on the graph. Um, and it, it's the same in the United States, which is, you know, we are told continually that this is one of the worst places, and that's because of our terrible government policies. Yeah, um, in the United States, it's a hundred, you know, one hundred sixty thousand deaths, and uh, and in the United States, annualized, about eight thousand people die a day. So you're talking about three weeks of, three, of death. Yeah. Well, that's just it. Three million people die in the United States every year. So yes, that hundred sixty something thousand that we've racked up. Um, it's going to push the needle up a tiny bit. But a lot of those people, and I don't want to sound callous, I don't want to sound as if I don't care or I don't care about people suffering or their losses, and, and it's not as if I don't care about old people whose, whose lives are still valuable. Right. Um, so that caveat. Nevertheless, a goodly proportion of the elderly cohort, uh, often very ill already, uh, that, that died at least with, if not from COVID-19, would probably have died within the year anyway. And that brings down the excess, excess deaths considerably. We're not really going to know what, how many excess deaths we've got um, yeah. and, until this is over. Yeah, I, w- I want to uh, pick up there when we come back to talk a little bit uh, about the standard, right? What, what's the standard uh, and what's the response when a standard is reached? Uh, that, that's sort of been lost in this conversation as people are just sort of flying by the seat of their pants with respect to locking down and the arguments they're making. More with Lionel Shriver, uh, best-selling author, contributor to The Spectator, her most recent offering, most recent book, The Motion of the Body Through Space. We'll be back later. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Lionel Shriver. She is a best-selling author. She's a contributor to The Spectator, and she's the author of the recently released The Motion of the Body Through Space, and Lionel, you were talking before the break about you know not not wanting to sound callous. Uh, every life is uh, precious, and every day of life is precious, and should be protected as best as possible. But as best as possible turns out to be a key phrase because it seems to me what you have here is no comparison in terms of 
uh, days of life lost uh, between those who uh, uh, succumb to COVID-19 and those who, for example, succumb to depression through addiction or through suicide, the opportunity costs we're paying, those who succumb to other ailments because of medical resources being completely devoted to COVID-19 as uh, in, in exclusion of other procedures that people needed, treatments that people needed. And also just the standard here. Number one, you don't do a trade-off analysis, which is unfair and, and unadult. Number two, it seems as if the standard in the Western world is one case, one new case, and everything around that case must shut down. And that's just not how we deal with anything normally. We deal in most likely scenario, but with respect to COVID-19, for some reason, this is the one exception where we only traffic in worst case scenario. Well, I mean, this is where I would blame government policy, is that uh, this response is totally disproportionate and does not take into account the greater good of the country. And that's a a much bigger matter than the narrow um, pursuit of suppression of a single illness. There are many other illnesses. I mean, it's, uh, it's estimated in the U.K., where I spend most of the year, that uh, while they've lost a little over 40,000 people to COVID, uh, they're going to likely lose up to 200,000 people just from uh, the, the knock-on effects of the lockdown. And that, that includes all the, all the people who are not being treated for cancer, et cetera, not not being diagnosed when they should be for curable cancers, uh, it's a catastrophe, and this is a this is a catastrophe of policy, and it, essentially we we are allowing the government to be hysterical, and to whip up hysteria. I mean, it used to be that we were resigned to the fact that we live in a world of infectious disease, and it's unfortunate and it's frightening. And some of those diseases are very dangerous, but life goes on. It used to. Mm-hmm. And we cannot afford this whole policy of lockdown. It, first of all, epidemiologically, it doesn't even work. All it really does, as long as the virus is somewhere out there in circulation, all it does is successfully delay cases that you're probably going to be looking at anyway. But even more importantly, we cannot privilege, if I can use a popular word, yes. we, can, we cannot privilege a single ailment over against the well-being of our entire society. You know, we, we talk about the economy as if it's just about a bunch of rich people counting their, their money in the attic. It isn't. It's the way that we survive in very dense circumstances like cities. It's a, it's a system by which we get our food and our water and our energy and we don't kill each other for something to eat. It's, it's, it's utterly primitive. And we are endangering the systems by which we live in order to survive a particular virus whose lethality, it turns out, is, is looking little more dangerous than the flu. Yeah, and, and uh, the, uh, it's a great riff on the economy, what it actually is, versus how it's reported. And also the virus on how it's reported. 
I mean, it continues to be reported on a case-by-case basis, yes. with, with every report being essentially like, this person just got a death sentence. I mean, Charlie Blackman, who's a professional athlete, he's an outfielder for the Colorado Rockies, he got COVID-19. Right now he's leading the league in batting average uh, for COVID-19. It turns out, you know, professional athletes, young people have, are pr- pretty resilient, and pr- specifically so with respect to COVID-19 infection, but that is not the way this is covered. And to the extent there's even high-profile people uh, that are older. Jack Nicholas and his wife both got COVID, both survived. They're both 80 years old. That is really downplayed. It, it is it is so purposeful on the media to whip frenzy like you were describing. Yes. I'm, in fact, it, I would encourage your listeners to start following a completely different index, and that is the number of deaths in the United States. And if you look at the number of deaths throughout this period that we're told that the cases are going through the roof and we have this out-of-control contagion and we're incompetent and we're all going to die, if you look at the deaths, it's a little difficult to tell because the graph jags up and down a lot. But if you kind of track the lines through the dots going up and down, the, the number of people dying has upticked only a little bit, very, very modestly. Because what's happening is that the virus is now circulating through younger people. And we do have a problem with a lot of younger people being in worse health, ironically, considering we're the richest country in the world, um, in worse health than younger people in a lot of other countries. And that's one reason that we're having higher numbers of deaths in that cohort. Nevertheless, they are much less prone to die from this disease, and therefore, as, it, as the virus circulates through that population, you don't see the deaths going up that much. And, and that's, that's the graph you need to watch, not the cases. And, this, and to your point, you mentioned it before the break, but uh, the uh, public opinion polling on this in terms of people's uh, understanding of how many people have died – and they're, you know, they're off by factors of 15 and 20. They're, they're saying in the millions. It, re- it was reminiscent to me of polling that was done on uh, what percentage of people do you think are gay in America? And, 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 and it turned out the, the median was 25 percent. That's what people right. came back said. And, you know, it's 2 percent, uh, roughly speaking. It's 2 percent. So why were people off by a factor of 12? Because they're inundated with it in uh, in how they in can, the media in popular in popular culture. Right. Yeah. And so that's the same thing. It seems that's happening with COVID. Yes. There was a, a poll taken of Americans um, asking them uh, what percentage of their countrymen did they believe had been lost to COVID-19. And the average uh, was 9 percent. That is 30 million people. I I agree that the, the public is not necessarily brilliant at math. Um, but, right. but that's 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 really bad at math. Yeah, uh, it, it speaks to the need to, for the schools to be open and uh, focused on math, doesn't it? Uh, she is uh, Lino Shriver. She's a contributor to The Spectator, author of the recently released the motion of the body through space. Lionel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's always a joy to talk to you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, on COVID and sports, 
who's playing, who isn't, uh, who's hysterical, who isn't. Uh, Big Ten, Pac-12, cancel the seasons. Uh, the Big 12 and the SEC not canceling seasons. At the pro level, which is just about a half a step up from the SEC, Jerry Jones announcing the Dallas Cowboys plan on playing all our football games, and we plan on playing them in front of our fans. Say, what? Yeah. A uh, little known fact, perhaps, outside of Texas, that the governor there, Greg Abbott, said in June he would allow 45,000 people into AT&T Stadium, which can seat up to 100,000. The main seating capacity apparently is about 80,000, and so 45,000, um, limiting it to 45,000, provides enough uh, social distancing space for the, that number of fans. Uh, Jones, uh, so no kneeling. We'll see if Jones enforces that. And yes to fans. Uh-huh. And it's interesting because this is playing out state by state, city by city, just as so much of the COVID-19 response has. I mean, it is worth noting. So in the Big Ten, you had the vote 12 to 2 not to play with Nebraska and Iowa voting to play state schools. Iowa stayed with a Republican governor named Kim Reynolds. Nebraska stayed with a Republican governor named Pete Ricketts. SEC, we know the political makeup of most of the SEC states. I mean, yeah, I know John Bell Edwards in Louisiana is a Democrat, but by and large, that is a Republican territory. Uh, everybody pretends they don't want to force this through some sort of political prism. They ha- wring their hands and lament that politics has insinuated itself here. Politics has now insinuated itself everywhere, everywhere, inescapable. So taking judicial notice of these Differences in approach all the way to 45,000 fans for the Cowboys is uh, wholly appropriate because at some point we'll be able to make perhaps informed assessments of who was the most sensible, who erred on the right side of uh, the risk assessment and who did not. What were the respective consequences that were visited upon the different decisions that were made? Yeah, that's how it should be, Uh, because uh, can you imagine Uh, that uh, the Bears are going to be in front of a half-full Soldier Field with with the the, the perspective of a Lori Lightfoot. Uh, I know in New York, it's outside the purview of Bill de Blasio, but the governors uh, of New York and New Jersey, what's their perspective going to be with respect to fans? May may Dallas be the only uh, professional football team in the nation that actually has fans? The only professional sports franchise at all that has fans the sweden of the sports world in america if you will it's going to be interesting to watch and learn and document and discuss and that's what we'll be doing on this show thank you for joining us on another installment of the dan prof show appreciate you tuning in and hope you do so again tomorrow From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.